Talking Birds. Made possible by the generous support of the Bird Watchers General Store. Orleans Cape Cod. By L.L. Bean. Inspiring you to get outdoors. By Celestron. Offering binoculars and scopes for birders of all levels. And by Chimani. Visiting a national park? Let Chimani guide you. Good morning. Welcome to our show number 613. If you're hearing us live, it's only the 26th of February, but up here in semi-north country, birds are singing. That's one of them. Nimus potty, uh, potty, sorry about that. Polyglottos, the northern mockingbird. We saw and heard a member of that species performing loud and proud high on a chimney top in the center of Boston this past Friday, which was the warmest February day in the city's recorded history as the temperature reached 73 degrees. That's on the 24th of February. Well, let's face it, most folks in the northern tier of states at least welcome early signs of spring, but there are trade-offs. Earlier springs, for example, can mean disruptions in timing for many migrating creatures. Songbird migration is triggered in large part by the length of daylight, and that's the same every year. And if spring arrives too soon, the food the birds need on their breeding grounds may be gone before they get there. A canary in a coal mine sings till she's overcome. Well, early in the 20th century, Scottish researchers figured out that canaries could be used to detect colorless, odorless carbon monoxide and other poisonous gases in coal mines to alert humans to imminent danger. The idea was that if the birds became ill or died, that would be a warning to miners that they should clear out. Are birds giving us warnings now? As the climate changes and spring arrives earlier, some evidence suggests that birds are traveling farther north than they used to. This may work for them to some extent, but it may also drive birds into areas that don't provide the kind of food or habitat that they need. Meanwhile, across the pond, a new study in the UK seems to provide a pretty clear demonstration of a northward bird shift. The study led by the University of Reading and the British Trust for Ornithology says that climate change has already led to the vanishing of some bird species in parts of England, where intensively farmed land gives them no room to adapt to warming temperatures. According to lead researcher Tom Oliver, quote, birds are facing a double-edged sword from climate change and declines in habitat quality, end quote. Back here in the U.S., a recent report from the University of Connecticut found that one in six of the world's species faces extinction due to climate change unless action is taken to cut carbon emissions rapidly. Here's hoping the actions springing from the recent Paris Climate Agreement will prove to be, as the head of the conference described it, an historic turning point in the goal of reducing global warming. Extra, extra, read all about it. Here are some of the stories and videos we have for you on our Facebook page this week. Bald eagles on their nest will link you to the Minnesota Department of Natural Resources Eagle Cam. Did you know that drones are as good as people at counting birds? That's what a new study says. See our page for the story. 
Since the year 1500, more than 190 species of birds have become extinct, and now that rate of extinction seems to be increasing. We'll connect you to a Wikipedia article about it. Those are a few of the stories we have for you on our Facebook page right now. We also have a link to our letter there, our Talking Birds newsletter, that is. We call it The Trumpeter, and we invite you to check it out on our Facebook page. And we hope you'll subscribe to it. It has uh, lots of nice photos, profiles of our guests, and other cool stuff. And yes, it is free. On our blog this week, Understanding the Endangered Species Act, our Debbie Bleacher offers an overview and links to learn more. That's on this week's blog, easily found at TalkingBirds.com. Well, we continue to be excited, amazed, and very grateful for the response to our call for Talking Birds ambassadors who have agreed to hand out some of our info cards to friends and neighbors. And we'd like to salute our newest ambassadors, including Amanda in Red Bank, Tennessee, our first ambassador from the Volunteer State. Thank you, Amanda. Thank you, Rod in Colorado Springs, Colorado, our first ambassador from the Centennial State. Thank you, John the Bee Man, proud beekeeper in the town of Hanson, right here in the Bay State, Massachusetts. Thanks to Roger in Lexington, Kentucky, our first ambassador from the Bluegrass State. And out in the Cornhusker State, thanks to new ambassador Zach in Grand Island, Nebraska. That's a place we had the pleasure of visiting last year as we observed hundreds of thousands of sandhill cranes on their Platte River migratory stopover. A quick visit to our Facebook page will provide a complete list of ambassador states. And Talking Birds listeners kindly do check to see if your state is listed there and consider representing it if it isn't. Of course, even if your state is listed, we hope you'll join our ambassadors program and hand out some of our cards to friends and associates to spread the word about our show and about birds and conservation. Easy to do and easy to sign up for. Just click on the contact button at TalkingBirds.com and choose the Become an Ambassador option. That's the Become an Ambassador option by the contact button at TalkingBirds.com. No G in talking. Still to come on our show today, we'll learn about some innovative design techniques to help prevent birds from crashing into windows and buildings. From the man who's created some of those techniques, architect and birder Guy Maxwell will join us here. And we'll catch up with our man Mike O'Connor in kind of a housekeeping installment of Let's Ask Mike Live. And up next, a bird that says its name, sort of, is today's Talking Birds featured feathered friend. It just happens to be the bird that appears in the form of a tattoo on the arm of last week's guest here on our show, our friend Nick Lund, a.k.a. the Birdist. Talking Birds is made possible in part by Celestron, a leading optics company offering binoculars and spotting scopes for birders of all levels. Celestron is dedicated to education and bird conservation and proudly supports many nonprofit organizations that share the same commitment. Celestron says, We care about birds and nature in our backyard as well as yours. Enhance your view with Celestron. Visit Celestron.com and discover more. Today's Talking Birds featured feathered friend is a type of gull, but it's not called a gull, and it provides its common species name in its call, which we'll hear in a moment. It's a small to medium-sized gull with a small yellow bill, white head and underparts, a medium gray back, and black wingtips without white spots. 
It also has black legs, which provide part of its common name, the black-legged kittiwake. And there we hear it, if we use a bit of imagination, saying its name. Kittiwake, kittiwake, lives in the sea, not a lake or a river. And despite not being called a gull, combined with its close relatives, it's the most numerous type of gull in the world. It's part of the only gull group that makes nests in cliff faces, which helps it avoid many natural predators. The black-legged kittiwake also has been known to nest in man-made structures like buildings and ships. The hind toe of the black-legged kittiwake's foot has evolved to be just a small bump, giving the bird its scientific species name, Tridactyla. Today's Talking Birds featured feathered friend, Rissa Tridactyla. You are my favorite seabird. Black-legged kittiwake. Kittiwake, kittiwake, lives in the sea and not a lake or a river. Thanks again for being with us here on our show number 613. Talking Birds is sponsored in part by Chimani, providing free outdoor mobile app travel guides to plan and navigate your journey to more than 400 national parks, monuments, and historic sites. From Acadia to Zion, go to Chimani.com, that's C-H-I-M-A-N-I.com, to download your free app today. Guy Maxwell is a management partner in Ennead Architects in New York City. He serves on the board of directors of the New Jersey Audubon Society and as a trustee of the Bird Safe Glass Foundation. He received the 2012 Arnold W. Brunner Grant for his research on bird collisions with buildings and is actively engaged with this issue on a national level. He is a LEED certified accredited professional and member of the American Institute of Architects and he joins us on the phone right now. Good morning, Guy. Morning, Ray. Well, it's great to have you uh, with us. You know, bird deaths crashing into buildings, it's such an enormous problem as you certainly know. Somewhere if I remember the stats, somewhere between 350 million and a billion birds die every year in the U.S. from crashing into windows. I guess it was kind of inevitable, Guy, that you would become aware of this problem as an architect who designs buildings, often with lots of glass, uh, combined with the fact that you're a birder. Yeah, that's right. Um, I can't tell you the exact moment it happened, but um, I can tell you one incident that sticks in my mind. Um, probably about 25 years ago, I had first moved to New York and had one of those um, wonderful uh, migration mornings in Central Park where I just had an incredibly long list of birds, um, lots of warblers. And as I was on my way back home walking to the subway um, on the sidewalk, uh, my heart sank when there lying on the ground at the base of one of the buildings on Central Park West was a, was a dead worm-eating warbler. Mm. And um, you know that certainly sparked my my interest and my motivation to learn more about the issue, which I've been working on for quite some time now. Mm -hmm. Well, this must have seemed at first, anyways, a pretty intractable problem. Glass is obviously a highly reflective material, and at some level, we want it to stay that way for the aesthetics of buildings that are created. How did you go about finding some solutions? Um, it's uh, it's 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 still a journey that's underway, um, but there are. Um, a lot of um, 
pro- existing products out there which um, architects can use. Um, and my goal has been to kind of uh, uh, essentially put on everyone's radar a kind of broad toolkit of products. Um, we were able to do that most recently at a building we did up in um, Poughkeepsie, New York, for Vassar College. Mm-hmm. Um, there the building was uh, on sited on a, a wooded kind of stream corridor um, at the edge of the campus, which we knew would be um, particularly problematic for birds if we didn't do anything about it. Mm-hmm. So there we, we used the building as a kind of case study to um, demonstrate different ways of going about uh, making the building safer for birds. Uh, we utilized a number of uh, products. One um, readily available, the ceramic fritz, which is a commercial commercial glass product, which essentially has a pattern um, on the glass. Um, another product, the exterior sunshades, which are quite common and have, have a synergy with uh, with architects and building owners trying to reduce the solar heat gain in the building. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, interestingly, a, a very unique product out of Germany that we found um, called Ornolux, which uh, utilizes uh, uh, UV reflective coating on the glass. So, in in effect, it appears as a clear piece of glass to you and me, um, but because birds have um, uh, acuity and a visual spectrum in the UV range, um, they actually see the pattern on the glass in a very, very pronounced way and es- essentially making it more visible to them. So this glass, or- Ornolux glass, is it almost, pardon the expression, kind of the magic bullet in terms of uh, uh, the, the best kind of glass to use, or, or is it too expensive to be widely, widely used? No, we've, we, we certainly at Vassar we found it was possible um, to include it in the budget. Um, but it definitely, you know, it gets at that at that central issue. I mean, glass. Um, you know, the history of architecture has been the evolution of of, uh, of of the use of glass in in some ways. Um, certainly, the desire to see out into the landscape is a is a very very um, desirable outcome for for most architects and and owners. Um, so, but that, as you know, with uh, with the issue of reflections. Um, on glass is, is a kind of fatal combination for birds. So yes, it's it certainly achieves both results by providing a glass that's virtually clear to you and me, but the birds see as a barrier. Mm-hmm. What have we uh, learned about the you know the the various levels of um, efficacy with these different techniques or different materials? It's that's certainly an, an evolving area of research. Um, we at, at, at ENIAD, um, we have a research arm called ENIAD Lab, and we've been working with Dr. Chris Shepard at the American Bird Conservancy um, for a number of years. She's developed um, a test um, tunnel, essentially a protocol, um, that interestingly has been uh, referred by the uh, U.S. Green Building Council in their pilot credit 55 um, as one of the, the most uh, sound ways to measure the effectiveness of different types of, of glass products. Mm-hmm. Um, certainly more research is, is needed in that arena, but um, Dr. Shepard has learned um, quite a bit um, to date, and, and her research is really a go-to for architects to understand what types of products work and don't. Mm-hmm. Well, we have lots of uh, glass exterior towers under construction in Boston. I don't know how bird-friendly they're going to be. How, how deeply is the concept of bird-friendly glass penetrating the architectural and construction worlds, would you say, at this point? I think it's certainly um, on the radar of, of many more architects and building owners um, than it was, you know, as recently as five or ten years ago. Um, certainly, um, I wouldn't call it commonplace, um, but with the introduction of the lead pilot credit 55 that I mentioned in, into 
um, the lead rating system, um, certainly I've seen ourselves in our practice a lot more owners um, being much more knowledgeable about the issue and interested in, in doing something about it. What about retrofitting existing buildings? I'm thinking of the Javits Center there in New York. I guess they did quite a job there in taking a building that was killing birds to really saving birds with a green roof as well. Yeah, retrofits are, are a major issue as well. I mean, the number of building buildings that are already in place that are problematic. Um, there are also a number of things you can do. Certainly replacing the glass um, with more bird-friendly glass is an option, but that, mm-hmm. that's cost-prohibitive in many um, situations. Um, but there are uh, film products that can be applied on on glass and, and other things that can be adopted in those situations as well. Mm-hmm. Guy Maxwell is a management partner at Ennead Architects, also serves on the board of directors of the New Jersey Audubon Society and is a trustee of the BirdSafe Glass Foundation and known for his research on bird collisions with buildings. Any advice, uh, Guy, for average listeners uh, with respect to this in terms of, I don't know, reaching out to uh, construction folks in their cities? Well, con- construction folks, certainly, um, you know, there, there are a number of cities that are actually um, adopting ordinances um, to mandate this, uh, you know, both at the state level. There's even, a, interestingly, um, a bill that was introduced by a congressman um, quickly from Iowa and uh, uh, Morgan from Virginia that uh, would mandate it in, in federal buildings. So certainly, you know, advocacy um, um, even locally and federally, would be a, be a big help. Guy, thank you so much for the great work that you're doing, and thanks for being on with us. Yeah, thanks so much. Guy Maxwell here on Talking Birds, and it's our mystery bird contest here in just one minute. If you've listened to Talking Birds over the past several weeks, you may have heard us talking about our upcoming trip to the Galapagos Islands. And guess what? The guest list is now almost full. So if you'd like to join us, and we hope you will, the time to sign up is now. We'll travel with our friends from Sunrise Birding, one of the world's finest small group touring companies. Get all the details right now at sunrisebirding.com. That's sunrisebirding.com. Here's an idea for the next time you're shopping for wild bird food. Look for the Audubon Park brand, a top choice among bird lovers for more than 40 years. All of Audubon Park's products meet the highest quality standards in the industry and have earned early compliance with the FDA's Food Safety Modernization Act. And Audubon Park products are easy to find at your supermarket, lawn and garden store, farm and feed market, and online retailers. For more information, visit AudubonPark.com. Talking Birds is made possible in part by the Cornell Lab of Ornithology, a world leader in the study, appreciation, and conservation of birds. Please check them out at birds.cornell.edu. We have to give ourselves a little dope slap here this morning. Ow! Well, last week on our mystery bird contest, Pat from nearby Pembroke, Mass, called in and guessed Whistling Swan for our our mystery bird, and we didn't award her the prize because it was the Tundra Swan. However... Uh, we had forgotten that Whistling Swan was kind of an old name for the Tundra Swan. As the folks at the Cornell Lab explained it, the Whistling Swan is the American race of the Tundra Swan and currently considered to be the same species as the Eurasian race, the Buick Swan, but they were considered separate species in the past. So, Pat, here's the deal. Give us a call at the end of our show today, and we'll arrange to send you a droll Yankees feeder, which we should have awarded you 
uh, last week. But here's this week's mystery bird. It's a bright red mystery bird that nests in the southwestern U.S. and points south. Wintering in the southern part of its range, it perches on a branch or wire, periodically flying out to catch airborne insects. The male of our species has a red crown and lower face and underparts, kind of a blackish-brown mask and blackish-brown wings and tail. The female is dull grayish-brown above with pale red under the tail and a streaked whitish chest. Obviously a pretty distinctive bird. Our prize is the Droll Yankees New Generation Metal Finch Sock Feeder. It's rust-proof, heavy-duty steel mesh tube, powder-coated in black, creating a sleek silhouette in high contrast for brightly colored finches. That's a pretty nice prize. We hope you'll try to get it. Tell us what that bird is or take your guess at 781-837-4900. That's 781-837-4900. Don't hesitate because our time is short. No correct answer means a drawing will determine the winner without a correct answer. 781-837-4900 is the number to call. Meanwhile, we're going to check in with Mike O'Connor. It's Let's Ask Mike live in just one minute. The North American Butterfly Association is working to increase public enjoyment and conservation of butterflies. The 100-acre National Butterfly Center in Mission, Texas, is home to native plant gardens with more than 200 species of butterflies. The climate makes visiting year-round a spectacular experience, and the center serves to educate the public as well as provide a research laboratory. NABA chapters around the country work on projects that benefit butterflies, hold nature walks, collect data, study ecology, and bring the natural world into the classroom. If we can save butterflies, we can save ourselves. Means that butterflies show us what's happening in our environment as we work to save these vital pollinators. NABA's Butterfly Garden and Habitat Program can help you create a paradise for butterflies while encouraging habitat restoration no matter the size of your area. Show your commitment to increasing butterfly populations by visiting naba.org. There's that music, especially for... We've got a little applause in there. I don't know where that came from, but... Mike, you deserve applause. It's Mike O'Connor down there at the Bird Watchers General Store, Orleans, Cape Cod. Good morning, Mike. I'll take applause anytime I anytime can get it. Anytime you right. can get it. Let's give him some more applause. There. Come on. <laughs> Canned or otherwise, I'll take it. <laughs> well, let's see. I think uh, we talked last week about how mild it's been around this part of the country and uh, lots of other parts of the country. I, I think, if I'm not mistaken, pretty much east of the Rockies, it's been, a, it's been well, we might say oddly... Mild, 73 degrees in Boston on Friday. I heard Columbus, Ohio had 76 degrees on Friday. So uh, birds are uh, certainly aware of this condition, and they're out there checking out bird boxes. Yeah, believe it or not, they have, the chickadees were even checking out my bird boxes the other day. And and, and I think if the people in, in the Midwest uh, can attest to that um, they had some mild weather, and then we got it. But they replaced their mild weather with like blizzards almost. So, so right now, or at least those people had had what they call a, um, a fake spring, <laughs> to coin a word. And yeah. so, if spring was nice, but then the, the blizzards came back. And so, I would say people who are still having nice weather should take this opportunity to um, investigate their bird boxes and clean them out because the nice weather probably isn't going to last. And by the time the birds really want to use the boxes, it might be too kind. Of, it might be a little bit more miserable than we want to go out there with a the ladder and start cleaning out the boxes. So I would 
say anybody's got nice weather right now on Sunday, whatever day, pick a day, and go out and open up the boxes and clean them out. If you didn't do it last fall, they definitely need to be cleaned out. But even over the winter, mice put acorns and stuff in there, so you might want to clean them out. My suggestion is, first of all, anytime you get a box, is to make sure it can be cleaned out easily. Get like a putty knife or a flat surface to scrape them out. You want to stand downwind because there's a lot of dust and there's a lot of parasite can get into these boxes, and you don't want to just blow them back in your face. So scrape them out. Let them air out. Some Mass Audubon recommends that you even kind of wash them out a little bit with a weak uh, 10 to 1 bleach solution. Other people will use vinegar solution to clean them out. But let them dry, and then you can seal them out, seal them back up, and be ready for the birds. If you wait too long, you, then you run the risk of, has the bird already started nesting? If you find a nest, is it last year's nest? Is it a new nest? You don't know what to do. Well, right now, no one's using them. They might be investigating, but they haven't started. So this would be the time... Now that we've got a little break in the weather to go out, clean them out, then you know in a few weeks when they actually start nesting, they're going to be ready to go. All right. Give a quick rundown, Mike, if you could, about what kind of birds you you can get in a nest box. And obviously not all birds will use a nest box. No, no. And maybe we could go into that further uh, details next week. But the beloved chickadee, in, which is our state bird, uh, the eastern bluebird uses, or here all bluebirds use nest boxes, but the eastern bluebird in, in our area, tough to tip mice. Uh, White and red-breasted nuthatches will we'll also, we'll also use them. Not very, comparatively few birds will use a box, um, but the ones that do are kind of tree swallows. I think everybody likes to get tree swallows if you live in an open area. And maybe next week we can talk about what particular uh, houses to use in, in placement and things like that. All right. Well, no wonder you got that applause there. <laughs> More info next week, too. Thank you, Mike. Rock on, man. All right. <laughs> Mike O'Connor, Birdwatchers General Store, Orleans, Cape Cod. We're back here now at the Mystery Bird Contest uh, trying to identify this mystery bird right here. A bright red mystery bird that nests in the southwestern U.S. and points south, wintering in the southern part of its range. It perches on a branch or wire, periodically flying out to catch airborne insects. That's part of the clue system there. What's our bird? 781-837-4900 is the number. We're going out to the southwest. Jill is there in Tucson, Arizona. Good morning, Jill. Good morning, Ray. Great to hear from you. Uh, we love listening to you out here. Oh, that's so lovely. How did you find our show? My husband introduced me, and he's actually um, a listener and a fan, too, every Sunday. Oh, that's wonderful to hear. Well, thank you. And what about our mystery bird, Jill? My guess is a Pyroloxia. Pyroloxia. That's a kind of an interesting, cool bird in a, with a cool name. But um, from checking my papers here, that doesn't appear to be our mystery bird. Oh, darn it. <laughs> but thank you for the call, Jill, and thank you for listening, and thanks to your hubby, too. Okay, thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Jill, there in Tucson, Arizona, guessing a pyroloxia. Uh, that's not what we had in mind. What, what do you think? 781-837-4900. Arlene is in uh, nearby Bridgewater, Massachusetts. Good morning, Arlene. Good morning, Ray. How are you? Well, thank you. How are you doing? Good, good. What do you think, Arlene? I, I think it's maybe a summer tanager. A summer tanager. That certainly is a, a red bird. I think they describe that as the only all-red bird in North America, if I'm not mistaken. But uh, that doesn't make it our mystery bird, unfortunately, this time around. Oh, okay. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you, Arlene. Bye.
What is our mystery bird? Here's the other part of our clue uh, uh, listing, by the way. The male of our species has a red crown and lower face and underparts, kind of a blackish-brown mask and blackish-brown wings and tail. The female is dull grayish-brown above with pale red under the tail and a streaked whitish chest. 781-837-4900 is the number of the Droll Yankees' new generation metal finch sock feeder. Uh, is our prize, 781-837-4900. We are darn near out of time, but we'll try to get another call in here if we can. Meanwhile, next week on our show, Nathan Peeplo, author of the new Peterson Guide to Bird Sounds of Eastern North America, will be our special guest. That book featuring what the publishers describe as an innovative visual index that allows readers to look up unfamiliar sounds out in the field. Uh, so Nathan will be with us talking about that book next week. And uh, are we going to squeeze another call in here? Jesse indicates that is not uh, going to happen. We are out of time. Thank you so much for listening. Executive producer, Mark Duffield. Associate producer, Debbie Bleacher. Engineer, Jesse Wilkins. And the identity of our mystery bird. Oh, boy, I almost forgot again. Uh, the uh, mystery bird, the vermilion flycatcher. Vermilion Flycatcher and Jesse has done a drawing. The winner is Jill in Arizona. Round of applause for Jill. See you next week. <laughs> Ray Brown's Talking Birds. Made possible by the generous support of the Bird Watchers General Store. Orleans Cape Cod. By L.L. Bean. Inspiring you to get outdoors. By Celestron. Offering binoculars and scopes for birders of all levels. And by Chimani. Visiting a national park? Let Chimani guide you. Chimani.com.